Let me try to find my PowerPoint. I'll pull that up. And as I do so, talk a little bit about what we do at Gospel of Grace. We teach verse by verse through the scriptures. And, oh yeah, here it is. And I'm going to be going on. I have a message this week in 2 Timothy. We'll have another one next week we'll be finishing. In fact, I'll be doing a little bit of a review of some of the major themes. And then I'll be going on to the book of Matthew. And so as Bob is teaching through Corinthians, I'll be working, Lord willing, through the the book of Matthew as well with you. So I'm looking forward to that. So this should be the PowerPoint here. There we are. I knew I would get it. Well, today, again, and next week, we're going to be examining the final personal instructions of the Apostle Paul in Timothy, in 2 Timothy. And in so doing, what we're really going to be looking at are the final words of Paul, because he ends up dying after these things. But one thing I think we're going to take away today is that the Apostle Paul, when he was suffering, he was completely abandoned by all of his disciples except one. That was Luke, the gospel writer. And from this, you and I are going to conclude that we must not be ashamed of the apostles' doctrine. Because if we abandon the apostles' doctrine, we're abandoning the very words of Christ himself. Dear ones, today it is very vogue, in vogue, to abandon the doctrines of the apostles. People don't like the fact that Paul clearly says homosexuality is sin. They don't like the fact that the apostle Paul lays out a very robust governance, namely capital punishment. They don't like the fact that the Apostle Paul teaches the doctrine of election. And there's various reasons, but dear ones, you and I cannot be those who abandon the doctrines of the apostles. Now, I want to begin here in verses 9 through 10 of 2 Timothy 4, where Paul explains why it was so urgent that Timothy would come to visit him in Rome, notice what he says. He says, Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Now, dear ones, notice in the very beginning, Paul wanted Timothy to make every effort to come to him because he knew that his death was imminent. And so Paul really longed to be an encouragement, certainly to Timothy but also that Timothy would be an encouragement to him. And from this, I think we have to remind ourselves that one of the goals of Christian fellowship is that of encouragement, especially encouragement of the scriptures. In fact, in Hebrews 10.25, it says, encourage one another as the day draws near. And so we encourage one another in the scriptures, and that's what I think Paul was looking forward to do with Timothy. But notice here in verse 10, we're given the ultimate reason why Paul wants Timothy to come quickly. Notice the explanatory for. Anytime you have a for, you should ask what it's there for. Well, here it's explanatory. It's explaining why Timothy should come. It says, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. Now, what's interesting is this Demas, he was a gospel writer, or excuse me, not gospel writer, gospel worker, who worked with the Apostle Paul. We know this from Colossians 4.14. We also know it from the book of Philemon. But what's interesting is Paul, through these verses, loses his various disciples. What I think he's doing is he's linking himself to Christ, who at his greatest time of need lost all of his disciples. And so in that sense, the Apostle Paul is in solidarity with the Lord Jesus. 
Now, Demas' desertion here, I don't think necessarily means that he was an apostate who had abandoned the faith. However, notice the phrase where it says, having loved this present world. You see that highlighted red? That is not a good sign. If you love the present world rather than the kingdom to come, it is a sign of unbelief, right? Now, notice the term world. Let me pull up my pointer because I'll be pointing out various things. The term world there is actually age, aeon in the Greek. So you have here a warning, really, about loving this age, and that's exactly what he was doing, loving this age rather than the age to come. But instead of thinking of Demas as an apostate, I think it's better to think about him more like a Peter. A Peter who had abandoned the Lord Jesus Christ in his greatest time of need because he would rather be comfortable than suffer. And I think that that's the way Demas is as well. Now, it's interesting to think about Demas's love here for this age is really being contrasted with Paul's love for the age to come. In fact, if you have your Bibles open, just look one verse earlier where we left off in 2 Timothy 4.8. Paul said that in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, you and I are living for this age or the age to come. And how is it that you and I will be willing to suffer persecution? Well, it's by living not for here and now, but for the king and his kingdom. And that's what Paul demonstrated, but it's where Demas fell short. Now, we see the same idea, by the way, in 1 John 2.15. 1 John said it this way. John said, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, we want to be a little careful about 1 John 2.15 because I think the world there, as John uses it, is not just the world as the creation of God or the arena of human affairs, but it is the world, namely humanity and rebellion against God. Now, why do I say that? Because I don't think the scriptures are saying it's not okay to enjoy a sunset or a family dinner. It would be if you love that more than the king and his kingdom. But what I think John is saying is that we're not to love the sinful aspects of this world. But nonetheless, dear ones, whatever Demas was loving, if it was the sinful aspects of the world or comfort, he certainly wasn't living for the age to come. Now, let's move on to Kreskins. We'll come back to Demas in our applications because I think he's a good example of like the Apostle Peter But notice Kreskins. That's an interesting name. The only time it functions in the entire New Testament. That's called a hapax legomena. Use that five times and you can use it at dinner parties. Hapax legomena only occurs here in the New Testament. Now, Kreskins, notice he went to Galatia. There is a textual dispute. Galatia could mean Gaul, which would be southern France. However, I think the New American Standard Bible is right. It was Galatia and Asia Minor. Now, from there, notice he mentions Titus. Does everyone remember who that rascal was? He was the pastor that Paul had placed in Crete. And here, he had also fled to Dalmatia. Now, one thing I want to point out is you see all of these disciples fleeing from the apostle Paul. When we get to verse 16, Paul's going to give you a summary and say, all deserted me. 
And again, he's doing that intentionally in this section of Scripture to show a solidarity with Jesus Christ because as Jesus was in his last and most painful days, his disciples abandoned him. Paul, who teaches the very doctrines of Christ, is now being abandoned by even his disciples. That's, I think, a a connection Paul wants us to see. Now, as we come to these next verses, Paul is going to give us some miscellaneous instructions, but he's also going to allude to this restored relationship with the gospel writer Mark. Notice what he says. He says, only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Dear ones, notice here Luke was the only one that did not abandon the Apostle Paul. That was Luke the physician, the writer of both Luke-Acts, the two-volume set. By the way, Bob has done a wonderful job helping us interpret Luke-Acts as a two-volume set. Now, this is helpful, and we're going to come back to this, but Luke is tied to the apostolic authority of the Apostle Paul. So remember, Luke is not an apostle himself, and I'm going to explain later why I think he should be considered a New Testament prophet. But as he writes, he's under the apostolic authority of the Apostle Paul. That's how we should conceptualize that in our minds. Now, let's move on to Mark. I'll come back to Luke in just a moment. But notice he says, pick up Mark and bring him with you. He says, for he is useful to me for service. Now, recall that Mark had previously abandoned the Apostle Paul. Remember in Acts 15 on one of those missionary journeys. And because Mark had abandoned Paul on a missionary journey, remember it created that schism between Barnabas and in Paul. Barnabas said, hey, let's let bygones be bygones. We'll accept Mark. And Paul said, no, we can't trust him. Now, it's significant here to note that this shows that the apostle Paul could forgive. And he did forgive. And he allowed here a brother who had failed to make amends for his past failure. Brothers and sisters, you and I have to do the same. There will be brothers and sisters in our lives over the years That will let us down. But we have to be those who are always quick to forgive, knowing that you and I have been forgiven much as well. Now, one thing I want to point out about Mark, certainly Mark is connected to the Apostle Paul, and he did a lot of ministry with Paul, but Mark, the gospel writer, is even more connected to the Apostle Peter. In fact, in 1 Peter 5.13, Peter calls him his son. So think conceptually, Paul has a son, Timothy, his right-hand man. The apostle Peter had a right-hand man that was Mark, the gospel writer. Now, let me put some things together for you. What I want to help you do is I want to help you understand how I think the New Testament came together and the relationship between the apostles and prophets. Remember the verse, jot this one down, Ephesians 2.20. Ephesians 2.20, Bob did a wonderful job teaching on that not long ago. Ephesians 2.20, it says that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Stop there. When it says that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, I think we all know what the apostles are. We say that's John, that's Matthew, it's Peter, it's Paul. 
But when it comes to the prophets, all of a sudden we end up looking at our shoes and we say, I I really don't know what he's talking about. The first thing we have to note is the prophets there must be New Testament prophets. Why? Well, because of the word order. If Paul had intended Old Testament prophets, he would have put prophets in in front of the apostles. But he didn't. So they're New Testament prophets. Well, who were they? Well, we know Agabus was one of them because he's called a prophet in the book of Acts. But I think conceptually we have to think of men like Mark and Luke who under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit gave us the very revelatory words of God and yet they themselves did not meet the criteria of an apostle. But they were under apostolic authority. Luke under Paul's apostolic authority, Mark under Peter's. And so therefore, this explains then, dear ones, why when you no longer have any apostles after the first century, you no longer have any prophets. And by the way, I'll show you evidence later in our applications that I think suggests the writer of Hebrews should be considered a prophet as well. So, all of these things kind of come together, and we start looking at all of these names. Now, let's go to verse 12. Notice this man, Tychicus, is mentioned. He says that he was sent to Ephesus. Now, Tychicus was a man who had relieved uh, Titus in the church at Crete. Remember, if you've read the book of Titus, you can read about that in Titus chapter 3. Now, notice here, this Tychicus, then, is one who's going to preach at Ephesus. He also had preached in Crete. One thing we can glean from this is Paul has a lot of different puzzle pieces, namely different pastors and elders that he can draw from. And he seems to maneuver them around to various churches. And I think by implication, that shows us that what matters isn't the messenger, but the message. As long as a man holds to the truth and is qualified to be an elder according to the criteria in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, It doesn't matter. And that's the way we should view our pastors in this age. They shouldn't be celebrities, but we're interchangeable givers of the truth. So whether I'm preaching or Bob or one of the other elders, uh, Mike, Mike Gendron was here. Whoever it is, it's the message that matters, not the messenger. I think that's by implication from how Paul maneuvers his chess pieces. Notice verse 13. He says, when you come, bring the cloak. What's this cloak? Was he trying to look like Obi-Wan Kenobi, or what's this all about? Well, no, I think this cloak, the term in Greek had to do with this big oval-shaped, thick piece of animal material that they would have used often on cold nights as they traveled. More than likely, this cloak was very expensive, and it was part of Paul's kit that he would have used when he was on missionary journeys. And I think the reason Paul wanted it was because he had some cold nights in a Roman jail. Notice after this, Paul talks about this carpus, and he wants the books here, the books, he says, especially the parchments. Now, the books that he's referring to here, Biblion, has to do with books that can either be in a scroll form or like a notebook. But the question is, notice the adverb, the adverb especially, it could be rendered namely. And if we render it namely, the books are, in fact, the parchments. But I think the New American Standard Bible is correct that the books and the parchments are different things. The parchments are something that are going to be written upon. The books are those things that have already 
been written upon. Here's the point. At the very end of the apostle's life, he was a man of the study of the scriptures. And so maybe you're listening to this message and you're in your 90s and you say, you know, I'm really too old to really study the scriptures. No, you're not. Maybe you're real young and you're listening to this and you say, well, I'm too young to study the scriptures. No, you're not. A believer should be studying the scriptures all the time because it's through the study of the scriptures that we have the encouragement from the Lord that enables us to persevere until that last day. Paul demonstrated that very thing. Now, Paul here is going to warn us about this heretic, Alexander the coppersmith. Notice what he says to Timothy. 2 Timothy 4, 14 through 16, he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. Now, I want you to note here this reference to Alexander the coppersmith. Notice Paul says that he did me much harm. What's very interesting is some New Testament scholars have done good research in looking at this phrase, did me much harm. And in certain texts in Greek and antiquity, it was almost a technical expression for someone who was an informant. And from this, many New Testament scholars have concluded that more than likely what Alexander the coppersmith did is he was the one who informed on Paul and turned him in to the Roman authorities. In fact, let me give you a hypothesis. I can't prove this, but a good reading of the data would suggest this. Alexander the coppersmith is in the Ephesian church. He's a heretic. He's teaching that the resurrection has already occurred. And by the way, uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus were doing that as well. If the resurrection had already occurred, you know what that means? It means you have no resurrection at all. The resurrection is just spiritual. Well, no, the resurrection that's taught in the scriptures is physical. So he was a heretic. So what happens is the apostle Paul puts him under church discipline. He becomes angry. And in the, the city of Troas, which, by the way, was known to have a coppersmith guild, he informs on the apostle Paul and turns him in so that the apostle Paul is arrested. That's the harm that I think Alexander the coppersmith probably did to the Apostle Paul, although we can't prove that. Now, notice here, Paul, though, right away says, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Remember this verse, jot it in your mind, Romans twelve nineteen. Paul says, make vengeance, excuse me, make room for the vengeance of the Lord. Vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. So Paul had been one who taught that you and I as Christians should not seek tit for tat and to get even through retaliation against people who offend us or harm us. That's something that you and I have to take heart from the Apostle Paul. But one area where people often get this wrong is they'll take the personal Christian concept of trusting that the Lord will be the one who retaliates on our behalf, and they enforce that upon the government, for example. So let's say Israel is struck by Iran and Israel retaliates. You'll have some pacifist who will say, well, no, leave room for the vengeance of God or turn the other cheek. No, that's something we are to do personally. But the role of government is to restrain evil. 
So don't take something that's for the individual Christian and enforce it upon a pagan government. It's a, it's a category error. Are you with me? The Bible does not teach pacifism, and we'll talk more about that when we get to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Now, he was very forgiving and allowed then the Lord to handle this issue. He was not vindictive. But notice here in verse 15, Paul says, Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. I think this shows us that Alexander the coppersmith is more of a Judas who never believed in the doctrines of Paul, whereas Demas or a man like Mark, they're more like Peter. Yes, they failed as well, but they were believers. Now, again, what did Alexander the coppersmith teach? He taught a different gospel. And so did all of the heretics that were lined up with him. Now, in verse 16, Paul goes to his first defense. Notice he says, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. Now, notice that verb that you see in red, deserted. That is a link back to Psalm 22.1. Psalm 22.1, excuse me, Paul is alluding to that. Psalm 22.1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, why is it important that Paul is alluding to that? It's the identical verb. Literally, you could render this, no one supported me, but all what had forsaken me. It's the same term that's used in the Greek Septuagint of Psalm 22.1. Well, the reason that's important is because Psalm 22.1 was ultimately fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the forsaken one par excellence, not just forsaken by his disciples, but forsaken by even the Heavenly Father because as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ was forsaken. But now, in solidarity, the apostle who teaches the same doctrines as the Lord Jesus Christ is forsaken as well. Today in our culture persecution is beginning to grow. And in many lands around the world, the more staunchly someone holds to the doctrines of Christ, the more forsaken they become. And so it is with the people of God as we stand in solidarity with Christ. Now, there's also, let me show you another connection that we have at the end of verse 16 between Paul and Christ. Notice the phrase where it says, may it not be counted against them. That's Paul in some sense, acting like a priest. He's asking for forgiveness for these people who are sinning against him. It sounds much like what Jesus said when he was on the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. And again, conceptually, we're seeing that Paul is in solidarity with the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Now, as we get to our final verses of this section, and again, there's all sorts of miscellaneous things, but we'll try to tie it together in our application, Paul is trusting here that because the future is so grand, he can suffer here and now. Paul says, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Now, notice in the beginning here, Paul says that the Lord was the one who stood with him. What's very interesting is when you read the scriptures in the New Testament, Jesus is the one who fulfills Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So Jesus is depicted as seated at the right hand of God. What's very interesting is to take note where Jesus isn't depicted as seated anymore, but standing. Read the account where Stephen is suffering because of his confession of Christ. And who stands for Stephen? Any human? No, the Lord Jesus does. And ironically, it was the Apostle Paul at the time, Saul, before his conversion, who probably instigated the attack on Stephen. But the Lord stood for Stephen. And now when all have abandoned Paul, who stands for the Apostle Paul? The Lord Jesus. When you and I suffer, dear brothers and sisters, it's awe-inspiring to think about the Lord of heaven and earth standing for us, the one who's been seated at the right hand of God. So he strengthened Paul, and notice this suffering that Paul went through was for no avail, or to no avail, but rather it was very purposeful. Notice the purpose statement. It was so that through me, the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that the Gentiles might hear. The suffering of the people of God who proclaim the gospel is not in vain. That's one of the things that the Apostle Paul knew about. Bob was teaching us in Sunday school today that God does indeed cause all things to work for the good for those who love him who are called according to his purpose. And he will use even the suffering of the saints for the furtherment of his name and the furtherment of his kingdom. Notice here in verse 18, Paul says that the Lord will rescue me. Now, this is this future hope that he will rescue me from every evil deed. And I want you to think about just a moment what every evil deed may imply. I think the worst evil deed that all of us could think of would be death. And yet the apostle Paul was absolutely convinced that even after death, he would go safely to the heavenly kingdom. Remember last time when I was teaching in 2 Timothy, I talked about two different aspects of a Christian's eschatology. I talked about what's called the intermediate state. So that's what happens to us if we die prior to the rapture. Well, what does the scripture say? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul teaches to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord or present with the Lord. We'll be with him. So as soon as death occurs, what happens to the Christian? Notice what it says in blue. We will be brought safely to his heavenly kingdom right away. As soon as you breathe your last, if you're a believer, you're brought to the new Jerusalem. That's what the scriptures teach, and that's why Paul could be very excited about his imminent departure. For for him, it was better to depart than to even live here and now. Now, what happens after the rapture? The rapture occurs, and the individual believer who's still alive will be given a resurrected body, be caught up in the air to meet the Lord, and will be brought to the new Jerusalem. So the good news is, from the Apostle Paul's perspective and from our perspective, no matter what evil deed comes upon us, no matter if Nero gets our head and beheads us, you and I are heading towards the new Jerusalem. That's the good news. Brothers and sisters, let that be an encouragement to you. 
Maybe you're dealing with some health issues or you're scared to fly or scared to drive or whatever it may be. You've got fears. Realize the moment you breathe your last, you're in the new Jerusalem. We went flying a few days ago. I'm still a pilot. And my son said, what happens if we crash? I said, well, we're going to the new Jerusalem. (laughs) I'll have to call Bob. Well, somebody will have to call him and let him know. But get a message ready, right? But we're in the new Jerusalem. That's the hope we have. That's the confidence that Paul had. Amen. All right, now, let's come to a couple of application points that I think are important. Number one, true believers will not ultimately depart from the apostles' teaching. What I mean by that is if it was bad enough to abandon the apostle Paul physically, how much worse is it to abandon him theologically? If we do so, I would submit to you that we're no different than Alexander the coppersmith or a man like Judas. Number two, Suffering with Christ and his people will always lead to greater reward than living for this world. We have to be convinced of that. So let's begin with number one. And that is the big takeaway that I want you to see here. Again, if it's bad enough to abandon the apostles physically in their time of need, and that was bad. It was Demas living for this world. How much worse would it be to abandon theologically or biblically the doctrines of the apostles? And so what I'm claiming is whereas Demas and perhaps the gospel writer Mark, they failed much like Peter did, the apostle. Alexander the coppersmith, who never had the doctrines of Paul, he failed like Judas. So think of this analogy. Judas, he never believed the doctrines. He had abandoned the doctrines of Christ. He betrays Jesus Christ, and he perishes. But wait a minute. You say... The apostle Peter, he also betrayed Christ. Yeah, but he really believed. He didn't abandon the doctrines. He may have abandoned the man, but he never abandoned the gospel. And so, yes, he betrayed, he sinned, but he repented again. Why? Because he really believed. I think that that's the way it is with Alexander the coppersmith. He had abandoned the very doctrines of the gospel. He stood opposed to them. He didn't have the gospel of Paul Therefore, he didn't have the gospel of Christ. Now, think about Mark, or you could put Demas in there. They're much like Peter. Yes, they believed and they had abandoned or fled, but they repented again more than likely. Now, what was the big sin again of Alexander, the coppersmith? Let me remind you, 1 Timothy 1.20 explains what Paul did with him, at least. It says, among these are the heretics. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Let me point to the screen here. Notice the term blaspheme. That meant they were teaching false doctrine. And so because Alexander was opposed to the doctrines of Paul, he was opposed to the doctrines of Christ. And I want you to think about today how often you see this. Red-letter Christians, like Tony Campolo, who's really just a Marxist, He doesn't like what the Apostle Paul says, and so he jettisons the words of the Apostles and says he only listens to the words of Christ. People often don't like that the fact that Paul teaches that women can't be pastors and elders, or that, yes, indeed, capital punishment is ordained by God, Romans 13, 4. And so for various reasons, people jettison Paul. They don't like his doctrines, and they become like Alexander the coppersmith. Brothers and sisters, you and I cannot follow suit. We can never abandon the doctrines 
of the apostles. Now, it's sad to think about the fact that in my own life, I know some people who recently have abandoned particularly the doctrines of the apostle Paul. And what I want to do is I want to share with you, I think I would almost assume 100% of you have not done that in this room, but I want to help equip you, give a defense to prove that people must listen to the Apostle Paul, and if they reject Paul's teaching, it's identical to rejecting Jesus Christ's teaching. I want to prove that to you, and I want to help you defend that view. So I want to begin in a passage, Matthew 10.40. Matthew 10.40 is a declaration by Christ, ironically written by a, uh, an apostle here, Matthew. But notice what Christ says about his 12. Of course, minus Judas. Matthew 10.40, he says, He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. So notice Jesus Christ here is saying that those who receive him, excuse me, the, the apostles are actually receiving him. But what does that reception mean? Notice in the box the term received there, decamai, means to warmly welcome. Warmly welcome. I like to think of the image of a family. You warmly welcome your son or your daughter home, but the salesman who's trying to sell you those new shutters, eh, <laughs> not so much decamai. Maybe just stay outside a little bit, right? The idea here is that if we won't warmly welcome the doctrines of the apostles, we're not warmly welcoming the doctrines of Christ. Now, to me, this would, uh, this would extend this verse, Matthew 10, 40, all the way to the Apostle Paul. Why? Because he was an apostle. But when I was using this text with this person who had denied the apostolic authority of Paul, they were quick to note that when Jesus said this, he was speaking to the original 12. Are you with me? So, for the sake of argument, let me show you something that still proves Paul must be listened to. Think about what Peter, Peter certainly was being alluded to here in Matthew 10, 40, but notice what the Apostle Peter says. The Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter three sixteen regarding Paul's writings, he's talking about Paul's writings. He says, as, all, as also in all his letters, that's Paul's letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Does everyone see that Peter is clearly calling Paul's letters scripture? Scripture. So think of the logic. If you deny, look it on the screen, if you deny that Paul's letters are scripture, you're taking issue with the apostle Peter. And the Apostle Peter was certainly referred to in Matthew 10.40. And if you don't receive the Apostle Peter, you're not receiving Christ. And if you're not receiving Christ, you're not receiving the one who sent him, namely the Father. If you reject Paul, you're rejecting Peter. If you reject Peter, you've rejected Christ. If you rejected Christ, you rejected the Heavenly Father. Do you see how important it is not to abandon the apostles of Christ? That's how critical it is. If someone says they don't like Paul, in my mind, I know theologically from Scripture that I can prove they don't like Christ. If you have a problem with the Apostle Paul, you have a problem with the Lord Jesus Christ who created all things, the Holy One of Israel. That's ultimately your issue. 
So, brothers and sisters, we cannot follow that. Now, some today abandon the apostles not by claiming they're irrelevant or they're not apostles, but by claiming that all sorts of people can be apostles, that the apostles of the first century are not unique. You'll see this oftentimes in charismatic circles. Well, if everyone's an apostle, then can you really have a faith once and for all handed down to the saints, as it says in Jude 3? No, it would be constantly morphing. And you'd have confusion. You'd have constant revelation coming in. But how do we know? How do you defend the fact that, no, it's only these apostles in the first century that are the men who spoke the very words of Christ? Well, I laid that out earlier. We'll do a little review right now. There's four criteria that the original apostles met that no human being can meet today. The first one is that a true apostle was called. How many times do you read in the beginning of Paul's epistles, he'll say, Paul called to be an apostle by the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you read that all the time? Well, this calling was not subjective, but rather it was objective and audible and personal. In other words, it was not subjective as if the apostle Paul sat down to eat his Wheaties one morning and said, you know, I think I'm going to be an apostle today. All this other business that I've been about, I've, I've kind of had that. I've, I'm looking for new work. No, that wasn't his calling. He objectively heard his calling by the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. He was called to be an apostle. And so audibly were the other apostles during Christ's earthly ministry. They were objectively called. Number two, according to 1 Corinthians 9.1, you had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection. If you were not an eyewitness to the resurrection of Christ, you could not be an apostle. That's number two. Number three, the apostles did miraculous deeds. And I'm going to show you that here from a passage in Hebrews. Now, why did the apostles do miraculous deeds? To prove the existence of God? No, they assumed that was true. They did miraculous deeds to prove that they were the very spokesmen for Christ. When you read Isaiah 35, Isaiah 35 promised that when the Messiah came on the scene of history, the deaf would hear. The blind would see. The lame would leap like a deer. And the poor would have good news preached to them. There would be miraculous things. And that was fulfilled in Christ's life, showing he was the Messiah. But then the apostles do the same thing, showing that they are the very spokesmen for Christ. When Peter's shadow would come upon someone, they would be healed. If my shadow comes upon you and you're injured, it's not going to do a lick of good except maybe prevent sunburn. That's all. Why? Because they were demonstrating they were the very spokesman for God. The fourth criteria of the apostle is that they were personally instructed by Christ. They were eyewitnesses. The original 12 for the first three years, but the apostle Paul was brought up to the same standard, personally instructed by Christ in Arabia for three years, according to the book of Galatians. Those are the four criteria, and no human being can meet that criteria today. Therefore, we know we have no more modern-day apostles. In fact, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about the significance of the apostles. He says in Hebrews 2, 3 through 4, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. First of all, I want you to see here in red where 
The writer of Hebrews says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? In other words, if those who neglected the old covenant and they didn't believe in the days of Moses, if they perished in the wilderness, how much worse will it be for those who neglect the terms of the new covenant that has greater revelation, a greater mediator, a greater promises, and greater evidence? That's the point. It's going to be even worse. But notice how did the message come? He says, after it was at first spoken through the Lord, Jesus is the original apostolos, the sent one by the Father. But right after that, it says, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Now, notice that phrase, by those who heard. That's a reference to the apostles. Now, how do we know that? Jot this down. You don't have to turn to it, but listen to me read 1 John 1, 1. Those who heard were the apostles who used their sense perceptions to know the Messiah. 1 John 1, 1, John said, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So this phrase, notice everyone in the screen here, notice on blue, where it says, by those who heard, that's a reference to the apostles. But notice here, by implication, the writer of Hebrews seems to be linking himself outside of the group of the apostles. It was confirmed to us. So do you see that? Us is distinct from those who heard. I think that is evidence that the writer of Hebrews should be considered a prophet under apostolic authority, but not an apostle. Okay? But the big issue is the apostles are those who heard. But notice in verse 4, it says, God was testifying them by signs and wonders and by various miracles. The miracles prove that these men spoke for God. Now, what if everyone does miracles today? Well, then everyone is an apostle and everyone speaks for God and you always have new revelation. You no longer have a faith once and for all handed down to the saints. That's what creates confusion. Dear ones, we can't abandon the apostle Paul by either saying he's irrelevant or by saying that he's not unique. And, oh yeah, apostle, the apostle Paul speaks for Christ. Well, my uncle does too. We can abandon them that way as well. Dear ones, let me show you what's at stake by abandoning the Apostle Paul in our own culture. Has anyone noticed as of late that police are under attack? A bunch of followers of Karl Marx say the police are evil. We have to defund them. Do you know what the Apostle Paul says about the police in Romans 13.4? They are ministers, literally diakonos, the same term that we have for deacon. They are ministers of God for your good. Let's see, if you follow Karl Marx, the police are evil. You follow the Apostle Paul and therefore Christ. They're ministers of God. Our culture, in some sense, is perishing, in particular, because they've rejected the doctrines that come from the Apostle Paul. Brothers and sisters, let us not be those who ever abandon his doctrine. Now, the last thing I want to come to is I want to remind you of the fact that as we read these final words in 2 Timothy, we're really reading the final words of the Apostle Paul prior to him being beheaded. And he knew that his death was imminent. But what caused him such courage and to be able to withstand 
excuse me, withstand so much agony in his life? Well, it was because he believed that the best was yet to come. He lived for the promises in the kingdom. And what's interesting is there was a passage, I'm going to share it with you, that Moses did much the same thing. Remember, who was Moses? He was the Pharaoh's daughter's son. And remember, he could have used that royal position for great pleasure, but he forsook it all to suffer with the people of God. So think about how Moses and Paul were different than Demas. Demas lived for here and now. He didn't want to suffer with the people of God. But look at what it says about Moses. And why, did, why was Moses different than Demas? It says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Brothers and sisters, that's what Paul was looking forward to. And dear ones, I would submit to you if you and I are going to be those who suffer and stand firm, we have to be those who are absolutely convinced of the future reward, the reward of Christ, the King, and his glorious kingdom. Let us be like Paul in that regard. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that you give us promises and that because you are a God who cannot lie, these promises are certain. We thank you, Lord, that your word is given to us objectively by infallible authors so that we may know what you've required. We may know how to be saved, that through faith alone and Christ alone, we can have the forgiveness of sins and we can have the promise of resurrection and everlasting life. I do pray, Heavenly Father, for my brothers and sisters that you enable them to persevere. Keep us firm in the doctrines of the apostles. Help us not to depart from them in the days and years ahead. We also pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give us opportunity this week, maybe even tonight with neighbors, to proclaim the goodness of your Son and his gospel. We pray that you would prepare hearts before us Regenerate them so that they may believe the truth of your gospel for the salvation of their souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.